0: Our text this morning is from 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 12. You will find this passage on page 987 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please to God and please God, just as you were just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. For you know, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, or that indeed, is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated, thank you so much. We continue in our series on Thessalonians. I'd like to pray for us before we get started today, and then we will take a look at this passage of Scripture together. Allow me to lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, I am thankful this week that your word is always as important as it is. No passage is more important than another no passage less important than another. And so we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, and we ask for you to impart on us conviction, encouragement. Guide us in the way of Jesus Christ. Remind us of the grace by which we are saved, and call us to a place of deeper understanding that we may fulfill your will to be sanctified pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, when, As we study the Bible as we do, we generally try to go verse by verse or section by section, and what happens with that, sometimes you run into a passage like this or others, uh, which are slightly different, where there is an emphasis on one part of the gospel or another. So for instance, this passage we're looking at today is very heavy with instruction, with instruction. And so as we look at it, we're gonna hear lots of commands, lots of things to do. And and what we must do in these moments is we have to remember that it is not a standalone passage. It's connected to the whole of Scripture. And so when we come to a passage with commandments, lots of them, lots of instruction, we must remember the gospel. We must remember the gospel. So this morning we're gonna start with the gospel. What's the gospel? What does that mean? The gospel answers a lot of questions. It is, if you would put it in such a way, the summary of Christian doctrine. But in, in short, here's what it is. It, it, it declares the truth that first, we were created by God. Everything was created by God. And there's some meaning there. It's not just that he created and left it alone. The fact that he created means that he has kingly authority over all of creation, including people. He's an authoritative person. He's a loving God and a kind God and a gracious God, but he's in charge. There's a problem, though. (laughs) God is king. We are his subjects. However, every human being that's ever existed, minus one, has rebelled against that. We're born into rebellion. We continue in rebellion. We say, no, having a king is not my thing. I'd rather just kind of rule my own world. We sometimes just need AOL Instant Messenger. I'm going to keep bringing this up. You've really made a huge mistake. Um, uh, You just want to keep typing and have the cool uh, screen name. Um, I think that's what that looks like for you, John. Um, We want to continue to rebel against God's kingly, kindly rule. It's what we like to do. We'd rather rule our own lives. And so God is this kingly loving authority but he has been wronged he's been wronged by you by me by everyone and because we've wronged the one who's actually in charge a debt is incurred there's a debt that's the problem we owe the king something we cannot pay we can't pay it we're in trouble what's the solution every other religion in the world says well get to work Christianity has a different and much more refreshing answer. And what is that answer? God himself, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ came and paid, didn't just forgive, paid the debt that we owed him. Do you hear that? We owed him a debt and he came and paid it for us through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. And through his resurrection, we are called to forgiveness. We're called to salvation None of these things have to do with what you and I do in our lives. It's all about what God has done and who he is. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So salvation is not about working your way there or proving that you're worthy or doing everything or doing the right things or keeping your life in order. Salvation is simply about God doing something incredible and us receiving that as a gift by grace through faith. That's salvation. And so this is the context of what we're talking about today. And, and so as we talk about behaviors, which is what commandments are aimed at, as we talk about human behavior, there's some ramifications here from the gospel that we have to remember. First, no human behavior is too awful for God to not pay for. There's not one thing. There's nothing that can be done that outpaces God's grace and love and forgiveness. There's nothing. There's nothing. Secondly, on the flip side of that, there's actually no human behavior that can replace the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't be good enough, but you also can't be awful enough for the gospel, for grace. And so behavior change, as we're going to read about today, we're being called to, uh, to weigh and measure our behavior and in some cases change it. And in every life, we all have something to change. But behavior change is a side effect, a side effect of the gospel of grace. It comes after. So when we look at passages like this about behavior, we have to think of a few things. So let's just talk about this passage specifically. First of all, this passage is talking strictly to believers. Paul is talking to believers, those who have been already made alive in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. I say that because... We must understand there is no way to please God outside of faith in Jesus Christ. And that's not an activity. That's simply saying, God, what you did, I receive. There's no way to please him. If you follow these commands and are not in Jesus Christ, it is not pleasing to God. This is the context of what we're being asked to do today, faith in Jesus Christ. Second, commands is kind of related Commands, obedience to commands, are a response to God's gift of grace. Every imperative in the Bible has an indicative. Every command has a promise. Commands don't stand alone. Even the Ten Commandments, which we talked about with the kids today, come with a promise. God said, here's what I want you to do. But before he said that, he says, here's what I've already done for you. You have an an indicative with an imperative, a a promise with a command. So the promise that we receive first before we turn our attention to these things is the promise of God's salvation by grace through faith. That's the promise of the gospel. And so the gospel is essential to the meaning of what we're looking at today. You can't move past it. You can't ignore it. It's part of it. it's, It's what we have to know and understand to see where this passage is going. So now that we understand that fully, we can just move on from it. We never have to talk about it again. Um, listen, look at the command words in this passage. There's a lot. Here they are. Abstain, control, love, live, work, walk. These are all commands. They're all commands. And what we, as we will learn today what they mean, remember, these activities cannot, do not, never will earn your salvation. They're insufficient. Salvation is a gift to be received, not earned. They're also not just good moral human rules. They're not meant to be that. They define the life of a follower of Christ. And so, Paul starts this passage reminding the Thessalonians, reminding us that before obedience comes faith in Christ. Look at the very first phrase, Of verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. (laughs) He's asking and urging the Thessalonians to do something, not stand alone, but in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's urging them in the gospel. And so we're going to see here in a moment that something pleases God, something is God's will, but that thing cannot be without faith. In Jesus Christ it cannot be without following our Lord and our master Jesus so if we're talking about God's will which is the name of the sermon today first the will of God is that we accept Christ if you have not been there that's where we start we have to go there first and then once we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and brought to faith in Jesus Christ then we have some things we have to sort out as we follow him there's a way in which God wants us to live. And so then we come to this, the, the, the rest of verse one through the beginning of verse three, he says this, he's asking, he's urging in the Lord Jesus, and it says, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Burke Parsons, he is the pastor that took over for R.C. Sproul down in Florida, and in one of his commentaries, he says this, When we struggle to know the will of God in our lives, we can always rest assured in the glorious truth that his will is what we become, that we become increasingly holy that we become like Jesus. As believers, we cannot help but want to be more like our Lord and Savior, for he has given us new hearts and is renewing our minds so that we might have the mind of Jesus Christ. So in a very generic way, what is the will of God for our lives? That we become more like Jesus. That's it. So for those of you looking at colleges, guess what? Good news. Go anywhere you want. Become like Jesus. For those of you thinking about changing jobs, good news, do whatever job you want, become more like Jesus. That's the will of God for every single one of his children's lives. It's simple, but not as simple as we think, right? Paul then moves on to our favorite topic, okay? (laughs) Another use for the bulletin, I mentioned several. If you feel like you're gonna pass out, just fan yourself, okay? It's gonna be all right. he gives some specific examples in this passage of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And he starts with this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, a quick statement. We're going to see this more in Genesis, and I think it's actually easier to see in Genesis because Genesis as we look at that through Advent and then going on to 2023, is such a different world than we're used to. And so we have to practice this thing where we look at the truth of Genesis and then carry it to our modern lives. And here's what I want to say. I'm going to say it again when we get to Genesis. I'm going to say it right now. It's an important truth about the Bible. Historical events and life circumstances do not change the meaning of Scripture. Historical events and personal circumstances don't change the meaning of Scripture. Our job as followers of Christ, in fact, what I do every week as I look to preach the Word of God is we try to find and distill the meaning. Of course, the meaning of the, of the Word is in a historical context. We find that meaning, and then we carry that meaning to our lives. It doesn't change. It doesn't change. And so when we come to this command, there's a word here, the Greek word that we translate, sexual morality." it's pornea, P-O-R-N-E-I-A. It's said 24 times in the New Testament, and it always means the same thing. It always means the same thing. Now, we don't have time for this today. We could go through all the passages in Scripture and, and talk about what this is, but I'm going to go to one passage in particular from the, from the mouth of Jesus to get at what this is meaning. First of all, the specific meaning of this Greek word, porneia, is any sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage. That's what it means. It's what the word mean, meant then. What it meant then, there you go. I'm a very, very good at English. Um, what it meant then is what it means now. Now, you may think, and the world would say, well, that certainly is narrow and kind of random. That's why we go to Jesus. So, set the scene. Matthew 19, Jesus is becoming more famous. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes hate it. They feel like he is stealing their ministry. They are jealous. They hate what he has to say. And so they're constantly looking to trap him. They want to trap Jesus. And so they come to him with this uh, kind of case study on divorce, and they want to use the topic of divorce to trap Jesus and prove that he is not all that he says he is. So they ask him a question about divorce. We're not going to go into his whole response. We're going to look at the very beginning of his response. And so Jesus, responding to their trap, says this. He answered, this is Matthew 19, 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, made them male and female. And we'll stop there. He goes on to tell them that divorce comes from the hardness of humans' hearts. It's not God's will. He goes on and on about that. But what we want to look at here is he's beginning an argument about marriage, about sexuality, about these things, and he goes to a specific place. He goes to creation. And so in this phrase, we have a lot of meaning. First of all, we see Jesus declaring divine authority on the topic. He did so in Matthew 5 when when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it's not just whether or not you commit the act of adultery. If you think in your mind about it, you've already committed it. That's That's an authoritative statement. Jesus is setting the pace. He's saying, here's where it comes from and here's what it means. He's affirming the meaning of marriage set forth in creation. Again, historical events, not even ones in ancient Israel, change the meaning of what God intends in Scripture. It doesn't change the meaning. What he's saying is God created males and he created females to be joined in marriage. There's this beautiful picture of different but equal. The difference of the people as they, as they are joined together, the difference of the people reflect how, how multifaceted God is. Marriage is a reflection of God's glory and honor. It, it, the, the, the fact that they're equal reflects the fact that there is a Trinitarian God where the Son, the Spirit, and the Father are co-equal, co-eternal. It's a beautiful but broken picture of God so what we can hear this morning, and what I, the best way I can summarize it is this. Throughout all of human history, okay, throughout all of human history, human sexuality has been ravaged by sin. Even heterosexual, heterosexuality, do I don't know how to say that word, heterosexual sexuality. I'm just going to say it twice because it's easier. All of, throughout all of human history, Every human relationship, all of sexuality has been ravaged by sin. It's not something new to us. And what's the answer? The answer is not, well, if you can't beat them, join them. That's not what we should do. The answer is to go to God who is the standard of life. That's the answer. God's law is the standard. It's not to be more stringent than he says. It's not to be less serious than he says. And so we have this command, abstain from sexual immorality. The bottom line is God has designed it. God is the king. God has the right to say what it is. Paul will get there in verse 8, but he has some lesser arguments to get through first. Let's take a look at those. He gives a couple reasons why why pornea is sin. First, verses 4 and 5. Abstain from sexual immorality, he says in verse 3, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Sexual immorality is a sin in part because it's a lack of controlling one's own body, self-control. Behavior in the Christian life that is pleasing and honoring to God in one way can be defined as controlling our appetites, our appetites. We, because Jesus is our Lord, which means master, do not answer to our physical bodies. That's the concept here. Uh, Just to so you know, it's not just about sexual sin. In Philippians 3, listen to how Paul uh, describes this. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly. And their glory is in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. So this idea of self-control is not just about our bodies when it comes to sexuality, it's about everything. Are we answering to Jesus or answering to our appetites? I think about this. This is an area that I struggle for sure. Many of us do. Many of us in the West do. Think about delicious food. It's okay to eat delicious food and taste it and enjoy it. But if we continue to eat and just taste, even though we're full, that becomes an issue we're answering to our appetite and not to God. We're answering to our bodies. And we hate to say it, but that's an affront to holiness. It's not reflecting what God wants of his children. It's dishonoring of our walk. This is not the way that God is leading and challenging his children to let their bodies rule them. Paul continues in verses 6 and 7. Sexual immorality hurts other people. Uh, What Paul says in verses 6 and 7, which we will read here in a second, throws out the window this idea that, well, as long as I'm not hurting anyone. Here's what he says. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. And as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. The concept here is this. To participate in any sexual sin that's constituted by the word pornea is to sin against every other person involved. Every other person involved even if it's consensual, even if everybody's in on whatever's going on, to do this thing is to sin with and against others. And so Paul's point here is that God, being a God of justice, says that is not loving your neighbor, that is injustice, and there is is consequences to that. God hates it. So Paul gives the clear commandment, he gives two reasons, lesser reasons, but honestly, Paul is not interested in an intellectual argument. He finishes with the bottom line, verse 8. There's a bottom line to this. Therefore, whoever disregards this, going back to verse 3, disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul is using serious and clear language, the command. It's without question. There's no unclarity. We sometimes treat things like this like, well, what does it really mean? It means what it says. (laughs) It means what it says. What does it mean? It means that every single one of us is to submit our sexual lives to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of God's will, and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Those three things. Now, That can be difficult to digest. Why? (laughs) We live in a world that has a view of sexuality that is completely opposite of this. It's opposite. Paul David Tripp in his book, Sex in a Broken World says, we live in a world that has gone completely insane in regard to sexuality, completely insane. And so when we fall down on what the Bible has to say, there is a massive difference in what we are called to do and the world says is normal, natural, and good. The fact of the matter, Christian, is we're called to live in a different set of boundaries than the world would have us live. The world is programmed to say, how far can we go? How far can we go? And and their answer is, well, as far as it makes you happy. Following Christ has a different question altogether. Following Christ, we have to ask the question, what more can I give to my loving God? That's the question we ask. And it's moving in the complete opposite direction. It's moving in the opposite direction. One author this week said this, Paul's perspective is that Christians must and can lead a life that conforms to God and not society's norms. It's a rough road ahead. But this next section, 9 through 12, reminds us what Paul David Tripp says in his book that for the hope for sexual sanity is only found in one place, the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the only place. It's not found in us finding ways to change our behaviors or ending particular relationships. There's no hope in those things. Those things, as we saw earlier, can only be found empowered by the Holy Spirit following Jesus Christ. And so, what is the answer to our lives, to the world's lives? Paul is concerned with one thing as he finishes this section, and that is the advancement of the gospel ministry. The advancement of the gospel ministry. The gospel going out and spreading. If you look at this, he starts this section with now concerning. He's answering some questions that they had asked him. We don't have those questions, but we have the answers. He covers several things. These are other issues that the whole church needs to take up. It was the same importance as abstaining from sexual morality. And here, here's what they are. Verses 9 and 10. Now concerning brotherly love. That's the word Philadelphia there. If you've been to Philadelphia, that's funny. Um, You have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We urge you, brothers, do this more and more. What's Paul talking about? He's saying to Thessalonians, continue your merciful giving. That's what they've been doing. They've been mercifully giving and loving the the, the Christians in their area who are persecuted, who have needs. Be increasing in merciful love for one another. He goes on. And aspire to live quietly and mind your own affairs. In verse 11, he wants the church to live quietly to solve their problems internally. Don't use political avenues to solve our problems. In the rest of the passage, he says this, and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. There's this whole background of of patronage in the city of Thessalonica, where you could live off a rich person and so some of the people in the church were beginning to live off people and they weren't working. And what he's saying is, listen, work with your own hands to support the church. Don't look to a a, a rich patron to sponsor. Instead, live with decorum, with outsiders, with non-Christians. And all of these things he's saying is focused on what? The expansion of the gospel. One Commentator said what the apostle warns against is becoming dependent as well as disruptive members of society whose reputation in no way enhances the gospel, the gospel. And so church Christian collectively individually, how we use our bodies, how we use our minds, how we use our strength, how we conduct our lives, with others, inside and outside the church, how we use our money, how we work out our problems with one another, how we interact with non-Christians. All of these things answer to one principle. One principle. We're called in all of those things to walk with our Lord Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit and by doing so, become more like Christ and please God. That's what all of those things is the will of God for us. I hope this morning, maybe this morning, some of you are asking, well, what's next? Maybe you have in your life a sexual sin. And this morning you're hearing from the word of God that under the definition of sexual morality, the activity, the the desire, the whatever it is falls into that category. And you're asking, what do I do with that? Or maybe you feel confident that you are exercising that part of your life well. I would say, first of all, every one of us is broken in that way in some form or fashion. None of us are perfect. But maybe there's another sin, maybe hearing about how you use your money or how you walk with outsiders or how you solve problems. Maybe there's something in this passage that is say, you're saying, I am, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but this is convicting to me. Where do we start? We start at the Lord's table. There's no better place. We start at the Lord's table. Why? Because it reminds us that sanctification is not about being better than other people at certain things. It's about exposing our whole lives to the sacrifice, the power, the call of Jesus Christ. It's what it's about. And so because we're all broken, because we believe that we're all broken in every part of our lives in some way, what do we do? We come forward to receive what we need from another, the only one that can climb the mountain, as we talked about in Psalm 24, the only one who can approach God sinless, the only one who can, who can stand up to the demands of Scripture and say, I've accomplished it. What did he do? He accomplished it. He paid for our sin, and he invites us into a relationship to make us more like him. And so, We get this regular reminder. We get a regular infusion of spiritual nutrition. We get a regular reminder of the promise of God that he will not kick us out. He knows our sin. He invites us in nonetheless, and Jesus Christ has paid for it. And so we look forward, not around. We don't look around in these moments. We look forward and we come to the foot of the cross, which is where the answer to all of our sin lies, only in that place. We all come forward, and we have one thing in common. Jesus is literally better than all of us, okay? (laughs) Let's just put it that way. Jesus is literally better than all of us. And so none of us come with a foot up or an advantage to the Lord's table. We come as worse than Jesus, but invited by Jesus. So this morning, if you confess that you're a needy sinner, that even this morning, you haven't got it all right. You've committed sin, maybe on purpose. If you confess that that is true about you, and you also profess that there's only one solution the cross, the resurrection, the return of Jesus Christ. If you make that profession, you've been baptized, you're called to come and participate in gathering together what you need more grace. So you're invited this morning to come and eat, come and be loved, come and be forgiven and sustained by Jesus alone. This morning, maybe you're one of two categories. One, either you don't believe that's true. All this Jesus stuff is a bunch of hooey. Well, don't come and eat. It's that simple. But don't leave it at that. Or maybe there is a sin in your life and you're saying, No, I hear what the Bible had to say this morning, but I prefer the other thing. Both of those are reasons to do two things. One is, don't come and eat. Don't come and eat. You're being dishonest and you're saying, I need Jesus, I need, uh, I need his covering, I need his resurrection, I need his death. That, that's not true. So, so don't say that it is by coming and participating. But also, listen, if you are not in Christ, as we covered at the beginning of the sermon, you're on your own account. And that, for, for anyone, is a bad situation. No one can stand before God with their own works and stand and be accepted. We need Jesus. And so if you're in that place when the time comes and you feel like, man, I need to know more, I'm more than glad to take time to speak with you. Any of our elders, any of your friends that are here, we'd love to speak to you about that. Without Jesus, we have no shelter. And so this morning, let's just take a moment Let's pray quietly. I'll gather us back together for a prayer of blessing before we participate in the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, thank you for the freedom that the gospel gives us to be honest about what's going on in our hearts, to truly seek out the ways in which we rebel against you, and even though it hurts beyond belief at times to hand those things to you, to know that we are handing them to the most caring, loving, generous, gentle Savior that we could have. Remind us this morning of the brutality of the cross. A brutality that our sins deserved, but Christ stepped in front and took for us. And I pray that we would find joy in the fact that we are only given his good gifts in the place of that punishment. Convict us all of our sin. None of us are like Christ. We're on that journey. Show us where we lack. Show us where you are loving us and guiding us, and maybe we respond to that in your gospel. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.